Support for Wabanaki Windows comes from the Abbey Museum, founded in 1928 at Sewer de Mont Spring in Acadia National Park and open year-round in downtown Bar Harbor with two locations and one mission to inspire new learning about the Wabanaki nations with every visit. More information at abbeymuseum.org. It's just a few seconds before 10 o'clock, and you are tuned to WERU-FM, 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor, and streaming online everywhere at WERU.org. Wabanaki Windows with your host, Donna Loring, is up next. Welcome to Wabanaki Windows. I'm your host, Donna Loring. Wabanaki Windows is a monthly show featuring Wabanaki perspectives, topics, and opinions, as well as interviews with Native artists, writers, and people of interest. Today, we have Esther Atian, a uh, Passamaquoddy tribal member, and uh, a staff person from, uh, the, actually the leading staff person on this project that we're going to talk about. Uh, we'll be talking about the Truth and Reconciliation uh, Commission project. Uh, we will also have uh, Denise Elpvader, who is the director of the uh, Wabanaki program for the American Friends Service Committee online, uh, as well as Arla Patch, uh, who is uh, an artist, teacher, and writer. And uh, she uses her talents for healing. Um, and Arla has been working with uh, the TRC uh, for a number of months now. Um, first of all, welcome to the show, Esther. Good morning. Uh, morning. And uh, I'm not sure who we have with us. We have Denise. Yes. And Ala. Yes, I'm okay, here. Okay, great. Uh, I'd like to, first of all, we've had a few shows about the Tribal, uh, tribal uh, Reconciliation Commission. And, and uh, you know, in looking at past shows, I was kind of surprised that we've had it uh, for the past looks like the past three years since uh since the 2010 but i'd like uh, i'd like to start out with maybe giving the uh, radio audience a, a general background up until you know what, what happened how the the program started and what what it's all about so i'd like uh esther to start and uh, then i i'll uh, cut in and have uh, denise say a few words about the the history so we had Esther. Thank you. Um, the main Wabanaki State Child Welfare Truth and Reconciliation Commission process um, officially began um, in back in 1999 when the State of Maine Office of Child and Family Services reached out to tribal child welfare staff to help them develop a training to uh, get state caseworkers to be in better compliance with the federal law um, the Indian Child Welfare Act of 1978. Through the years, we developed a very good work in relationship with the state. We worked together on issues of policy. We helped um, <clears throat> create new policy at the Office of Child and Family Services and impacted both the pre-service training that caseworkers receive and in-service training. In 2008, um, in the spring, we heard of this idea about a Truth and Reconciliation Commission because what had happened, uh, the relationship between the tribes and the state around child welfare were much better. There was more communication. There was more compliance with ICWA. 
but tribal caseworkers would still report that they could only get so far in this collaboration that they would hit. And the only way they could articulate this um, dynamic was that they would hit this invisible wall and they didn't know what was happening. And in discussions in our ICWA training work group, which we were called, um, we really decided and we all believed that we needed to go back into the past and really talk about what happened to Wabanaki children and families with Maine state child welfare and to talk about the history of Wabanaki people and this history of oppression and genocide and how forced removal <coughs> of our children and forced assimilation has impacted us and continues to impact us today. What we had done in developing this relationship is we were trying to move forward forward together without going back first. And we all agreed that we needed to go back and unearth the history and, and the experiences and the stories of Wabanaki people. So in 2008, we made a, a decision to pursue a Truth and Reconciliation Commission process. And the tribal folks, we went off on our own. The state folks were at the table and they said, you know, whenever you need us, we're here. But we all understood that the tribal folks needed to do some work on their own to really wrap our minds around what we were reconciling, what the it was. So we did that for several months and actually almost two years we worked together. And in February of 2010, we invited the state Office of Child and Family Services representatives back to the table. And together we collaboratively wrote the Declaration of Intent, which is the first step in creating a truth commission process. And that Declaration of Intent was signed by Governor LePage and the five Wabanaki chiefs on May 24th, 2011. And <clears throat> we worked collaboratively again. The convening group is, is the, the ICWA training work group morphed into this organizing body called the convening group. And on June 29th of this year, um, we had a signing ceremony, another one, and the Governor LePage and the five Wabanaki chiefs signed the mandate for the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, which really brought to life this process. And, and the mandate outlines the instructions for the commission, gives them their charge. And it was a very historic day. Um, both of those signing ceremonies were very historic because this is the first official Truth Commission in the territory that we call the United States um, to deal with Native child welfare issues. And it's the first that we know of in the world that has been developed in this way, has been developed with grassroots people, with indigenous folks at the table, um, within an indigenous framework, and between tribes and a state working together collaboratively. Truth commissions are um, usually uh, designated by the head of a state, the head of a country, and sometimes that the president of that country will also choose the commissioners. And, and the, the purpose is to rebuild their nation after some horrific act of genocide. And this is very different in how we've been working together. So Esther, this, uh, you threw out some acronyms there, and uh, we should just tell people what, uh, like ICWA, uh, what that stands for. Okay, ICWA is the Indian Child Welfare Act, and it was federal legislation that was passed by Congress in 1978, and that codified higher standards of protection for Native children involved in state child welfare cases. And this was necessary because of the high rates of removal of Native children from their homes and tribes and communities that were being raised in non-Indian homes. Um, at one point, actually even in 1984, 
despite passage of this law six years later in 1984, Maine still had one of the highest rates of removal. I believe it was 19 times higher than other states. And this removal of our children by the state child welfare system across the country was a continuation of policies of um, forced removal that were intended to solve the Indian problem by killing the Indian and saving the man. It, it, policies of genocide against Native people started um, from the first contact. And <clears throat> when these policies of physical genocide, there was a shift in the 1800s from physical genocide to, to um, assimilation, and that's where the boarding school movement came. Um, at one time, all Native children in the country were mandated to attend boarding school. Uh, the most famous one is in Carlisle, Pennsylvania. It was the Indian Carlisle Indian Industrial School, which was founded by Henry Richard Pratt, who was a, a military man and a Baptist. And he really believed in um, ass- <coughs> assimilating Native children to um, get them get the Indian out of them to save Native children from their own culture. And Carlisle, in the years that it operated in the late 1800s to the early 1900s, um, there were over 10,000 Native children from across the country that were taken to Carlisle, and over 1,000 of them died while there. Um, <clears throat> many of them, they, they stayed there for 5, 10, 15 years and returned very scarred, unable to speak their language. Um, they, they suffered horrible abuses at those schools. And fast forward to the 50s, the Bureau of Indian Affairs, uh, the federal agency that is tasked with uh, dealing with Native people, contracted with the Child Welfare League of America, one of the most prestigious, oldest child welfare agencies in the country, to conduct an an experiment. They set out to prove that Native children were better off raised in um, white homes and adopted by white families. So they strategically took 385, 395 Native children, starting in the New England states from across the country, um, took them from their their safe, content, loving homes to be adopted by white families. And many of these children have never returned back home. So these policies of forced removal and assimilation have, um, <clears throat> have infiltrated into our child welfare systems as they are today. And there is still disproportionate numbers of Native children, Black children, and Latino children represented in the child welfare system. Okay, uh, I just wanted to another clarification is the uh, the members of this uh, uh, you call it convening group. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, when you first started talking about the need for the uh, researching the history and whatever, you were a did you have something to do with the the, tri- the tribal child welfare system or? Were you working with state welfare oh, people? Me? Uh, well, in pe- particular, in general. Uh, well, in 1999, um, the okay. Let me back up. The federal government provides all of the states with money to administer child welfare programs, and states are also evaluated on how they do in several areas. And in 1999, uh, the state of Maine um, had their evaluation, and they their scores on their compliance with the Indian Child Welfare Act were low. And so they reached out to tribal child welfare workers um, from all of the communities to help them uh, develop a way to to bring their compliance up. Uh, This group formed and was called the ICWA, 
work group, the Indian Child Welfare Act work group. And at the time, I was working for Penobscot Nation, and that's how I became involved. Um, since then, I have moved into working with the Muskie School. And the Muskie School was the facilitator of that equal work group, and that's how we became involved in this work. Uh, when we decided to um, pursue a Truth and Reconciliation Commission process, we morphed into the convening group. It's basically, it is the same the same folks that have been working together just under a different name. Um, and I'll get to you in a minute, Denise. <laughs> Hang on. <laughs> um, Esther, we were talking uh, in the car um, about the actual uh, aha moment when this happened. And it uh, basically, I think you said happened at a Casey Foundation meeting? I think that state people were attending this? Yeah. Um, my supervisor, uh, Marty Zangi from the Muskie School, he's not going to like that I said his name on the air, <laughs> and, uh, and Dan Despard, who was the head of the Office of Child and Family Services at the time, were both in attendance at, I believe it was a Jim Casey convening. It might have been in St. Louis. And there was a group there that was presenting about community reconciliation and talking about this truth and reconciliation process. And that that is how it's like serendipitous, which really describes a lot of things that have happened in this process since then. Uh, they they thought, wow, this might be something that the, the tribes and the state child welfare folks might want to uh, pursue. So they brought the idea back, idea back to us. And in uh, 2008, we had Jill Williams from the who was the program officer for the Andrus Family Fund, who, and the Andrus Family Fund has since funded uh, this process thus far for us. Uh, she came up and did a presentation on what truth commissions are and how the Andrus Family Fund could support this work. Um, Jill was the executive director of the Greensboro Truth Commission, which was the first official truth commission in the United States, and it was um, focused on a single event on the Klan murders of five Communist Labor Party workers who were protesting in November of 1979. And the survivors of this, this massacre, 25 years later, initiated a Truth Commission process. And Jill was the director of that process. So we, we have had um, wonderful expertise all along the way from folks who have done this before. Okay, Denise, you ready? I am. Okay, go ahead. Uh, when I first started in this process, um, when we were working together with the state, um, trying to make sure that um, they complied with ICWAR and um, trying to have a um, equal working relationship where the state um, recognized the tribe as an independent um, government that had the capability and the um, expertise to deal with our own child welfare process. Um, you know, that took a lot, of, a lot of years to work through that. In the beginning, there was a lot of mistrust. Um, there was a lot of misunderstandings. And um, it, it, it was really difficult work, even after we did the training. Um, we trained over 500 DHHS workers in a matter, I think it was within a month after we developed the training. So over the years, as we worked, um, we started developing a better relationship. We still had a lot of problems. But I think that um, when we talk about the truth and reconciliation, what's really important to understand is the way that we were able to come to the point where we could do this kind of work is 
we started to um, uh, work on in a process called um, um, what is it? Uh, where you um, ha have circles and people are able to talk and have equal time. Um, Esther, I can't remember the name of it. Um, um, anyway, um, reevaluation counseling. Yes, reevaluation counseling. We decided to implement that with our group and. We broke up and people just took time talking about who they are, you know, as people. Never mind who they, who we were as um, individuals working um, on a project. Just who we were as individuals, how we felt, what, what our life experiences has, had been. And it was from that process that we were able to really work together as equals and trust each other and be able to be totally honest with each other. Um, and that was the only way this process was able to move forward. And I think it's important to understand that because it was through this human level of connection with each other that we were able to move beyond the problems that we knew existed and needed to be dealt with in a real honest, sincere, and um, loving way. And. Um, the state and, and really at that point came out and was very open and honest with us about how they felt about what was going on and we were able to do the same thing and um, when we did the mandate <clears throat> for the when, when we did the declaration for the truth and reconciliation it was really an incredible experience to be able to have the child welfare um, of the tribes and the staff of the DHHS, and you know, we're, we we mean the top head people. We're talking about the director of child and family services was one of the people on the committee. Um, you know, for us to be able to work on this really difficult document together and really be honest and open and come up with something that would be um, meaningful, that would be. Um, change things in a way that really would matter, that would really make a difference. And when we first decided to embark on this project, we, just, we thought we were going to work on the tribes, um, the child welfare departments, and the state child welfare, uh, DHHS. And we decided that no, this really needed to be between the tribes and the state of Maine. And when we said that, we said, it's never going to happen, but that's our goal. That's what needs to happen. That's what, need, that's what this really needs. So we reached out to the Maine Indian Tribal State Commission to help us with this process. And at the time, um, Governor Baldacci was in office and um, did not sign the declaration. And um, when Governor LePage was, um, um, became governor, we really didn't think that we would get anywhere with this, and um, but we didn't we didn't we didn't move from what our our purpose was. We we wanted it to be this way. We knew that it had to be this way if it was going to be a real meaningful process, and we we knew that if anything was going to change um, in the system of the department, so that things would like this would never happen again, and so that children in the future would be treated humanely and never, not treated the
the way we were treated um, and others who were treated in the past, um, that it had to be done in a way that really was a true, open, honest, and um, um, public way. And so we did it. You know, and when we did the signing of the declaration and Governor LePage and the, and the tribal chiefs were there, I think we were all holding our breaths. Um, we couldn't believe that it was actually going to happen. And until they actually signed the document, um, I, I think we all were, were, in, were in amazement. <laughs> and um, it, was, it was an incredible moment for us. Um, working on the mandate was also very difficult. It took a lot of work. It took a lot of trust on both sides of the state and the tribes to come up with a mandate for the Truth Commission. And um, when that document was signed, it was um, signed in Augusta, and it was just a really moving and extraordinary experience for all of us to have that mandate signed because that's really the, the you know, the, the real guts of this whole process, that mandate that really outlines everything that's going to be done. And so our whole purpose is to make some changes within the structure of the DHHS system, some real changes so that something like what happened doesn't happen again, but also so that changes on how they do their work in the future with children, not just Native children, but all children, is done in a way that they can learn from the Truth Commission. Um, the other purpose is healing for Wabanaki people who will finally have a voice where they can tell their stories, where they can be believed, where they can be heard, where they can be supported, and where they can begin to heal. Um, not just those who will be telling their stories, but the families of those who are telling their stories. Our communities are very small. And so the healing for that individual will also spread to the healing of their parents and their children and their grandchildren and will heal other parts of the community, even those who have never been involved in child welfare because we act out all of these, um, we act out all of these things that were done to us on each other. and. Um, you know, our communities are really in turmoil, and this is not the only um, thing that has caused uh, historical trauma in our communities, but it's a big piece of it. It's a big piece that I think is going to really make a difference. Okay. Um, so I, I guess what I'm getting from this is that, you know, it's not like, like Maine was uh, totally uh, doing a really good job in child welfare. Uh, I, I think it was that there was some recognition of of issues and problems dealing with uh, with uh, the tribes in the system, and then there was a there was a big amount of trust that developed between the uh, the tribal uh, child welfare people and the uh, state welfare people. I think yeah. that's that was key to have that trust to move forward. Exactly, because when we first started, um, the ICWA was not being followed at all. The tribes weren't being contacted when Native children were being put into foster care. 
Um, the tribes weren't having a say into where kids were being placed, um, and it really changed that whole um, system of the state really truly um, acting in a way that they believe the tribe was an equal to them, that we were capable, that we had the expertise, that we knew how to work with our children and we knew what was best for Native children. Um, you know, it took a few years for us to get to that point, it, um, and we did get there. I want, I want to um, talk a little bit about what it was like in 1999 um, at that time. 16% of all Maliseet children were in state child welfare custody. <clears throat> and uh, at the signing ceremony of the mandate on June 29th of this year, Chief Brenda Commander, in her address, talked about what that was like for her and the action that she took to make some real changes. Um, and <clears throat> it was actually one night the, the state had shown up with, with the police to take a child off out of her community. And she physically went there, and she stopped them. Her and some other grandmas went, and they stopped them, and they said, you're not taking our children anymore. And that action she took and the, the stand that she made <clears throat> prompted um, a real collaborative effort between the Maliseets and the state. And there was a historic agreement uh, that, w that came out of that. I believe it was in 2000, maybe 2001, <clears throat> that gave Maliseets... Uh, maximum participation in state child welfare cases because there's some issues of jurisdiction here too because Passaquoddy and Penobscot have own, our own tribal court so they can assume jurisdiction over their children in their territory. The Maliseets and the Micmacs don't have a tribal court so the state has exclusive jurisdiction over ch their children uh, in child welfare matters. So this, this tribal state agreement that came out of this the stand that Brenda Commander took was very significant in helping lay the foundation for this work we're doing now. Let me just add that the uh, the memorandum of agreement that came out of that between the state and the Maliseets, uh, the Passamaquoddies and Penobscot uh, allowed uh, tribal children, if they were uh, members of the Holton Band of Maliseets, to be uh, heard, that case heard in tribal courts. So that was a big uh, issue, a big, a big thing, an important thing for the uh, Holton Band who were losing custody of their children left and right uh, in a court that totally didn't understand the culture. So part of this MOU understanding with the state uh, has allowed uh, the, the tribal courts to hear these cases. <clears throat> Some of the work that the ICWA work group continue to do together. Uh, one of many accomplishments, uh, we have a, developed an online training for caseworkers in the Indian Child Welfare Act that really talks about things like oppression and racism and white privilege. Uh, we were able to, on two occasions, do a, a case review of all the Indian Child Welfare cases in the state, and they were reviewed <clears throat> on several points, um, how they collaborated together, how if notification to the tribe was made, and also if there was evidence of white privilege in the case notes. The other thing <clears throat> that we did was uh, write and, and pass um, a real comprehensive Indian child welfare policy. 
And I want to note that it isn't an Indian Child Welfare Act policy because the Indian Child Welfare Act is very clearly defines what an Indian child is. We have many children in our communities that do not fall under ICWA because they are not enrolled in our tribes or eligible for enrollment, but the Indian Child Welfare Policy for the state really treats children um, in, in a more holistic, cultural way because those children are still part of our communities, they're still part of our culture. And I feel really good about that policy and the work that we've done with the state on that. We, we have the learning and the understanding has been just phenomenal on both parts to come together to, to create that policy. Okay, so um, I think we've covered the, uh, the background, the history of this. So now I'd like to bring in Arla. Uh, and uh, Arla, you have, uh, you're, you're an artist and a teacher, right? Yeah. And uh, you, when did you uh, come in contact with the, with the uh, Truth and Reconciliation Commission? How did you start working with them? Well, it was actually <clears throat> quite by accident. I was, um, I had visited the Navajo Reservation in the summer of 2011. And again, a lifelong concern and um, interest of mine about Aboriginal people was brought to the fore. So I actually um, doused the internet and I put in a search that said Native American Quaker Maine. And that's when the Truth and Reconciliation um, Declaration of Intent came up. So I also watched a, uh, or listened to, I think it was actually one of your programs that Denise was on. And when I heard Denise's story, I realized that I did have some similarities in that I have a trauma history. I never lost my culture. I never lost my language. I never lost my relatives, my siblings. But I did have other similarities, and um, so I started to pursue an opportunity to serve and to volunteer. And it was in January of this year that I began serving on the communication subcommittee for the Truth and Reconciliation. Now you've done uh, you've done some outreach work in uh, communities that I believe are uh, in, in the southern in southern Maine and elsewhere. Well, yes. Um, mostly, I live in the Western Mountains in the foothills, and so naturally starting in my own community was my first approach. But I did, uh, as a writer, I wrote an article that the um, Sun Journal in Lewiston had published on a full page at the perspective section on Easter Sunday. And that kind of got things going, uh, and that created a, a presence and put some of the ideas out into the community. Other things have just sort of unfolded. For example, we've been celebrating a Native woman named Molly Ockett for 52 years in the Bethel community. And the woman who is the uh, current executive director of the Bethel Area Chamber of Commerce, this was the second year that the Commerce was hosting that celebration. And it occurred to her that there were no Native people in this celebration. And um, I knew her pretty well and taught her children and we were having a conversation about this and she knew that I was working for the Truth and Reconciliation so she asked if I would want to create an information table at this event and that led to quite a bit of um, interaction with the local community. What I've come to understand is that white privilege is like fish that are swimming in the ocean and they don't even know that they're in the ocean and 
it's very important for white European Americans to understand that everything that we enjoy in this land, being here, home ownership, all the things that we, that we have um, came at a price, and that the people who paid this price need justice. And the most basic obligation to fulfill some part of that justice is to learn what the truth is and what the state's history is, and then to take action to improving that future. So there are many possible ways that we can um, get the education to happen. And as a teacher, I've been teaching for 40 years, it just comes naturally to me to try to teach my community the truth. And one of the events that is coming up in Southern Maine is uh, I have partnered with the University of Southern Maine and the Wabanaki Student Center and the Multicultural Center. Um, I'm a member of Portland Friends Meeting, at, which is Quakers, and so we, along with University of Southern Maine, are co-sponsoring an event that should be probably the largest event that we've had to date to try to inform the community. Um, we're going to be in an auditorium that seats 235 people. Both Denise and Esther are going to be on the panel. Um, we're also going to have um, the poet, Miku Paul. And the Wabanaki students are going to open the evening with drumming. Um, we're also hoping to have an educational piece in this that teachers might be able to earn CEU credits with a table. There's a professor there at USM who is heading this piece of it up. She's done a lot of work with Aboriginal people in other states, and we want to see if we can't help give teachers support in bringing back cultural information so that they can help educate their students. When is that? What's the date? That is Thursday, November 15th. Mm. And November is Native American Awareness Month, and so we're part of that month-long celebration. In fact, the week before this, on same uh, university, University of Southern Maine, in Hannaford Hall, they're hosting Winona LaDuke, and her talk is on the Thursday the 8th, and then ours is the following Thursday the 15th. And that, the time on that, November 15th, is uh, what time? 6.30. 6.30, and, there's, and that's at the... That will be in what's called Talbot Hall. Oh, Talbot Hall, yeah. And the other, the Hannaford uh, Winona LaDuke lecture is going to be in the Abramson Center. Yes, in Hannaford Hall. There yes. should be close to 500 people there. Yeah. And what we're hoping is that she would be willing to mention the Wabanaki Truth and Reconciliation, and then she might also um, mention our event, which would really be great to help get the word out. I'll, I'll uh, ask her about that. <laughs> okay. Um, is there anything uh, that anything specific that you would like to uh, to discuss or about your work? Uh, I, I I sort of did a little research on you on your uh, website and uh, noticed that uh, you did you've done some uh, photography. Yes, um, I'm not so sure that my uh, role as an artist and um, image maker. I'm not sure if that's going to come to play at all in this work. Uh, I feel as though mm, the role for me right now is, first of all, listening and being available to be an ally. And if I can use my voice as a teacher, I think that's probably 
my most significant contribution. Yeah, I, I, you know, I was a little curious because when I when I looked at the site, I, I saw that uh, you uh, you use your photography uh, as an art and an art form for healing. And I do. my thought process was, how, how is that going to work, or is that going to come into play? I really don't know at all. I I kind of doubt it because the only way that it might is if the um, non-native community comes forward and needs to tell their stories and wants to seek out venues for ways to express those that healing. Um, I do have experience working with incarcerated women and at-risk girls and people who've had life-threatening illnesses. I, I have used art as a tool for healing, but I'm not, I, this is totally turning it over to the universe because I have no idea if that's actually going to come to come into play. Um, the part of my skill set that I want to use now is I have learned so much since January in terms of my own white privilege, even though I grew up thinking that I didn't have any and that I was sensitive to these issues and that I was, I learned about it back in what we call first day school in in Quaker meeting, um, which is Sunday school, is when I first learned about what happened to Aboriginal people in this land that we're occupying. And even with all of that background, I have had a lot to learn. Um, There's just a a tremendous amount of ground to cover. And if I can help other non-Native people cross some of that territory and begin to understand what they see, I mean, the part that's the most disturbing to me is that Native people, the condition of Native people today in terms of the socioeconomic distress on those communities could in any way be interpreted as somehow due to who they are, to their qualities, their characteristics. It has absolutely nothing to do with that. In fact, I'm astounded that the Native communities have have as much of their essence and their culture as they do, given the assault of what's happened to them culturally, emotionally, and spiritually. We have to tie the colonial history to what is happening today, and that really needs to be understood. I mean, just I don't think most Mainers would even know that Native people didn't have the right to vote until 1954. Now, they fought in, our, in all the wars, and they had no right to vote until 1954. And in Maine, I'm sorry to say that um, Native people didn't have the right to vote in state and local elections until 1967. I mean, these are things that, that the non-Native community just doesn't know. And I'm really looking forward to spreading that information as far and wide as I can. Mm-hmm. I would encourage you, though, uh, not to leave the Native community out when you think of of the art and the healing, I mean native people that's that's who they are they yeah. they're they're artful and creative people, and uh, sometimes they don't have that uh creative outlet to use for healing uh, anyway that's just I'll just throw that out well, I'm totally here and available if called on mm-hmm. yeah and uh okay, since we've introduced you and uh I, I'd really like to to move forward here and uh, and talk about the next step um, as far as uh, uh, bringing the you know picking choosing the, the the commissioners and and what that entails. So uh, Esther, if you want to start, sure. Um, we 
we're fortunate to secure some funding from the Anders Family Fund to hire an interim director of the commission for four months. Um, Carolyn Morrison uh, took that role in August, and her number one charge is to get the commission seated. She's been doing a great job. We we have a commission selection process that was signed as part of the mandate, and this process outlines a 13-member commission selection panel. There are five state representatives, five tribal representatives, two representatives, a tribal and a state from the convening group, and one representative from the Maine Indian Tribal State Commission. Now, these 13 folks from all over the state um, have come together, and they are responsible for choosing the five commissioners. The time frame, they, ha they have 90 days to do this, and their 90 days ends um, November 18th. <clears throat> so they, there was a public call for nominations, and the media communication subcommittee that Arla is a part of was very uh, instrumental in helping get the word out. We actually received 57 nominations on October 1st was the deadline. And out of these 57 nominations, um, <clears throat> the, the commission selection panel is in the process of reviewing all of those that followed through with an application, because not all 57 that were nominated um, decided to follow through with the process. So they have a stack of applications that they are looking at, and they will deliberate and, by consensus, choose five <clears throat> commissioners who are persons of recognized integrity, empathy, stature, and respect, with a demonstrated commitment to the values of truth, reconciliation, equity, and justice. Now, these are five people that all of the signatories to the mandate can agree on. The timeline, um, we hope to have the commission seated <clears throat> sometime at the end of the year, and they will undergo a six-month orientation or preparatory phase where they have to establish their group process and their structure, and they have a, really do a lot of learning about Wabanaki history and state child welfare history. After their six-month orientation, they will be ready to begin their work, and they will be focused on each tribal community and the state community for two to three months each. Um, <clears throat> in this time, they will have us, they will create a statement-taking protocol and, a, and have public hearings. They will hold public hearings in each of the communities where people can come and share their stories and experiences. The convening group is the group that is basically the gatekeeper for how the commission is, uh, behaves, and acts uh, in tribal communities. We recognize that tribal communities were, were sovereign nations. So they are guests in these tribal communities, and they will uh, receive the information from that community in the way that the folks in that community deem appropriate. So they may, they may end up uh, being asked to participate in ceremonies. We're not sure. But that is when we wrote the mandate, there was a lot of discussion that went into this because the mandate really outlines the instructions, the, the how, excuse me, <clears throat> the how and the when, and we really held that piece sacred to, to make sure that Native people were in charge because we really don't want to re-traumatize people, and we want to make sure that there's enough support and that everything happens in a good way. So the, the five folks that are chosen, basically, um, they have to be unimpeachable. They have to be people that 
have uh, that everybody has trust in that will make the right choices and um, document what happened in a good way and in their executive summary come out with sound recommendations for best child welfare practice with Wabanaki children and families. Okay, so there is a 13-member select committee. Mm-hmm. Okay. And these 13 members, how, how were they selected, the 13 members? <coughs> well, the five tribal representatives were, were appointed by their tribal chief. Okay. And there, there are five representatives from the state. One of them was appointed by Governor LePage from the executive branch. We have somebody from... We have a representative from the Judiciary Committee, a representative from the Health and Human Services Committee. We have um, from the Attorney General's Office, we have a representative. And then the final person is somebody from the courts, and it's actually somebody from court-appointed special advocates who are the uh, run the um, volunteer guardian guardians ad litem program. So those are the those are the ten, and then we have two representatives from the convening group, the organizing body for this. There's a state somebody from the state OCFS side, and somebody from the tri- tribal child welfare side, and then we have one representative from the Maine Indian Tribal State Commission. So will there be uh, an interview process for the candidates, or are they just going to uh, review the applications? And I the the process that the commission selection panel is coming up with is I'm not privy to those details, um, what they have decided. And they, they're they learning a lot from what happened, what the folks in Greensboro did. And what we talked actually with the uh, the person who was the chair of the Greensboro Selection Committee. And they, that selection committee in Greensboro took an oath and have upheld it to this day not to discuss what their process was um, because it's very difficult to do this um, anyway, but to do it with so much scrutiny uh, that there are things they really are concerned with protecting people's confidentiality and privacy and want to have integrity in the process. So so I am not at liberty to, to disclose how they're going to go about this um, and what information they are going to be able to, to give to the public. Okay, so but uh, they will have chosen the five commissioners, would you say, by... November 18th. November 18th. Now, is there going to be a public announcement? Yes. Yes, we will have a, um, a public announcement. We also plan to have um, a celebration and a, a swearing-in ceremony where they will publicly take their oath to serve on this commission. Okay. Um, Denise, did you have anything you wanted to add to this? I just, I just wanted to say that the, um, while this process is going on, um, the the other work that's that's happening, in at the same time, um, Arla and other members of the communications committee are out there um, working with the um, general public of the state of Maine, trying to educate them and. Um, we have people in all of our tribal communities working with community groups, and we've already started the process of having people come forward wanting to tell their stories and to um, make sure that we have the supports in place for these people. Um, we, Esther and I have done a lot of speaking engagements, 
but we um, are now doing um, a lot of um, media work. Um, the BBC was here and spent the whole day um, taking, um, um, they actually interviewed me, and um, my son was there, my oldest son, and my son agreed to be interviewed. And um, that process that happened that day was an exact, um, exactly what we see happening in this process. Um, my son heard my story for the first time, and then I listened to my son as he talked about what his life has been like, what it was like growing up, what his life as an adult has been because of what happened to him, how he has parented his children, um, the difficulties he's been through, and um, he was very open about his life, and then in the end, um, you know, turned to me and said that um, he had all the respect in the world for me, that I, I was the best mother he could ever have, um, how much he loved me and appreciated me and got up and just held me and hugged me, and we just cried, and that is what this whole process is about because um, we really have to be careful, like Esther said, about not re-traumatizing people and we need to make sure that we have things in place because when, you know, if people will just stop and take a minute and, and think about their own little children in their homes, you know, for me, you know, one, two, three, seven, eight, and nine-year-olds. That's how old we were when we were taken. You know, and if you would just think about your own children and how you would feel and how that child must have felt if somebody just comes along and snatches them from the loving people who are supposed to take care of them, um, make sure they're safe, make sure that they have their, their needs met, um, for that child to just be taken and put into an alien um, situation or an, an alien life um, is just such a horrible trauma in itself. Um, and then you put on top of that some of those people who were taken that were abused, um, little children who just don't deserve to be treated like animals. Um, that whole aspect of of what this human side of the work that we're doing is so important for us to focus on. And um, for me, when Governor LePage was speaking at the mandate, he said it perfectly. You know, he really gets it. He, he went off of his speech that was prepared, and he just looked up, and he said, um, you know, when I was younger, I had to leave my home when I left my home, I was amongst the people who I looked like, who spoke my language, who had the same culture that I had. He said, I can't imagine, you know, having to leave my home or being taken from my home and put in a place where, you know, people don't look like me, don't talk like me, um, you know, don't understand the life that I've lived. He just, it was incredible. Um, it probably the best, best part of the whole mandate process when he went off speech and, and, and said that. And 
um, he's exactly right. You know, I know there are a lot of kids out there who are taken from their homes and put in foster care, and that's traumatic enough. But for Native kids who've lived in their Native communities, and that's all we've known, and it's a, it's a life just unrelated to the life on the outside, um, the trauma of being taken and then the trauma of being um, put into a world that you just don't understand and that you know you don't belong in, um, it's, it's really, um, it's horrible. It, it was a, it's a nightmare, and no child should ever have had to go through that. And um, we always say that our focus is always going to be whatever we do, however we do it, what we keep in our mind is what's best for the children. We will always make sure that we keep in our minds that all the work that we do will make sure that no child ever has to be traumatized in that way. Um, and um, that, that, that we're working really hard to make sure that doesn't happen. Yeah, and I the think... The best it, we can. Yeah, and, and, you know, what you just, what you just uh, explained is the, the end of... So, you know, the microchasm, the end of the project is, is uh, when people actually see and understand their own heritage, their own parents there. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and that's a healing. That's healing. Mm-hmm. It's it painful, but, yeah. uh, but it's healing, and, and, we, and we are moving towards that. Yeah. Uh, we have a generation of young people, and that generation is my grandchildren's generation, who are the ones who have um, been, all this has been dumped on them. They're the ones who are now feeling the results of all the trauma and the generational trauma that has happened um, in their lives and they're acting out. And, you know, we have such a high suicide rate, a high high school dropout rate, incarceration rate, you know, and the poverty that we all a lot of people in our community still live in. I mean, those are all results of the, t- the generational trauma that that some of this stuff has um, contributed to. Uh, Esther, did you have anything you want to add to this? When folks have asked me what what the the bottom line is or the messages that that I would like to convey with this process, I have two. Um, Really, what I want non-Native Mainers to understand is what Arla talked about, this idea of white privilege, to know how they benefit from the fact that um, Wabanaki people were targeted for destruction. And the message that I want to give to Wabanaki people is that it's not our fault, that these things, the, the realities we live with today are just manifestations of this legacy of genocide and that it is not our fault. And I think with those two things, we can we can begin to heal. And, um, you know, that when we first saw it, I remember in 2008 when Jill gave that presentation, we really, it was scary because we said, if we do this, there's not going to be any more us and them. It's going to be we. And that process has happened within that convening group, and we are confident that tapping into our humanity can help this process happen on a larger scale. Arla, do you have uh, maybe a last word? I do. Um, I had the opportunity just a week ago to go to Emanuel College down in Boston and speak to a freshman seminar called Art and Social Justice 
And I watched the faces as I gave them a lot of this information that the communications committee created a PowerPoint with all these truths that they didn't know. And I saw the shock and the awe, and I call it the shock and awe talk. And I said, what you can do with those feelings, because some really intense feelings can come up for the, the white European community, especially if you've had relatives that came over a long, long time ago in the early years of this country. What you can do with those feelings is turn them into fuel and have that fuel create action. And the action is to educate yourself about this history, to look at your own racism and your own white privilege, even if you don't think you have any, take a deeper look. And then as Mainers, I think the, the place you can go with this is to actually feel really proud of our state for stepping up to the plate. We are the first ones, and maybe as Maine goes, so goes the nation. That would be wonderful. And it's something we can feel really good about. Okay. Uh, and with that, um, I think we're going to uh, end the show here. Um, thank you for tuning in to uh, Webinaki Windows. Uh, I'm your host, Donna Loring. Uh, my guests have been Esther Atian, uh, Denise Elpvader, Arla, and Arla Patch. Uh, the song you are hearing is a song is a tr on a track by Ralph Richter called Little Eagles. Uh, and uh, the engineer is Amy Brown. Thank you for tuning in. <laughs>